My Rebbe, uh, for a number of years, was um, Rav Palm Zatzal. One of the things he, he'd tell us um, that stuck with me is um, every time you look the other way, when you see a Jewish child suffering, among the other problems is um, you're being over on Halama. Right? It's very tempting sometimes to look the other way. But when you face it and you deal with it, Hokem Mimo, like the end of the Pasuk says, he'd say among the many mitzvahs, the, the, perhaps the most significant is Hashavah Saveda, because you're returning a lost neshama. That's what I want to open with, is that it's not easy to see, and it's not easy to recognize, and I've been working in a related field to this with um, specialized clinics and research and writing and unfortunately all too many experiences um, in our community um, and it's still hard for me to see. Um, I still am less likely to see it if it's one of our own than I am if it's uh, somebody outside of the community. Let me start with a story um, about um, where, where Mechanech was heroic and was Mekayim Hashavah Saveda for hundreds. I'll start with that, then I'll get into the Tachla stuff. Um, I was once involved in a situation that came to light the following way. Chassidah Sherebi was teaching Haschalos Gemara, and he skipped a Gemara that was uh, dealing with um, Kedusha-related issues. So he skipped a Gemara, of course that's the sure way to guarantee that all the Bacham are going to try to learn that Gemara and figure it out. And one kid calls out, Rebbe, we know more about this than you'll know in your whole lifetime. And the whole class cracks up laughing. So the Rebbe stops. Now this is a moment, a moment of Bechira. It's an Akudas HaBechira, right? He could either laugh with them and look the other way. He could fail to do the Hakeim Takeimimo, or he could open his eyes and do the unpleasant task of figuring out what, what's happening. So he asked the class, what are you talking about? What do you mean I know more, than, more about this than anybody else does? Explain to me what you mean. Class gets very quiet. Nobody says a word to him. And during a break, the Rebbe calls the kid who, who called this out, sits with him, and listens. He just listens and pushes and pushes and pushes. And finally, the kid talks about a janitor who got a job in this yeshiva, which was a dormitory I guess, Masifta, and, um, and um, had been molesting. He got out of serving a prison term, of a five-year prison term for abuse, and he f felt, where could I find more vulnerable kids in a chesidah yeshiva? And he gets a job there, and... Um, when the police raided his apartment, the apartment he had in the yeshiva grounds, they found 40 videotapes of him um, inappropriately having physical contact with the Bahram in this year and from, from some time before. So just think, think about this chus that this Rebbe has on so many levels for stopping generations of kids from having this happen. Now the first question that I'm sure comes to everybody's mind is why didn't the kids tell? What keeps this a secret? And one of the things we have to do in terms of uh, getting our head into understanding why kids don't tell 
is it's important to understand it. I mean, first of all, all abuse thrives on secrecy. What any, um, any molester will tell you is don't tell. And if you don't tell, you'll be okay. But if you tell, and then there are all kinds of threats. If you tell, nobody will believe you. If you tell, I'm going to show these pictures of you to your parents. If you tell, you know, um, it's, it's going to, you know, it's going to all be in jail, but you'll be put in jail also because you were part of this. And the secret becomes the source of protection and the source of tremendous busha. So ingredient number one in keeping it quiet is secrecy. I was talking to some people at um, OHEL this morning. We were talking about um, how sometimes going through very tough times in life leads to, leads to literally being frozen in silence. I talked about the Barbanel on Bayido Maron that we read last Shabbos. And Barbanel says, why the Lushan of Demimus and why doesn't it say Vayishkod Aron? What's the difference between Sheket and Demimus? And he answers that Sheket is for when you know the answer and you choose not to say it. Demimus is for when you're so frozen that you're rendered totally speechless and you're, you're in that place of Demimus. Um, I, I have a friend who in turn, had a friend who was a psychiatrist who was caught in the stairwell during 9-11 and just barely got away with his life. And my friend is a well-known psychiatric researcher in the field of trauma, and he took a picture of the brain of this psychiatrist while he was reliving a flashback to that horrible moment six and a half years ago. And he showed me the picture. It's something called an fMRI. You could see literally what parts of the brain are lighting up as you're experiencing this painful reliving of the moment. And he shows it to me. And he shows me that Brokaw's area is shut down. That as this doctor is reliving that horrible day six and a half years ago, he's literally rendered speechless. And when I saw it, I thought to myself, <clears throat> I'm, this is literally a picture of Demimus. But then here's the important part. The Rufua comes from relighting Broca's area. The Rafua comes from giving words to the pain. The Rafua comes to the hake, from the Hakem Takemima. That's what it comes from. It comes from standing by them, giving them help, getting them safe, getting them support, and taking care of the situation. So what keeps it secret is we have to remember not only are there threats, but there's also a tendency on the part of young children to respect, especially in our world. There's a tendency that I see all the time to say, look, it was an older person who did it. I have to have covered towards them. Or to say, um, it would have been rechilos. How could I talk about it? What about Lashon Hara? What about all these kinds of things would keep it quiet? And those are the forces that work against it. Plus, you accommodate to a certain level of, um, of, of abuse in a way that it becomes the new normal for you. And um, you put that all together and it begins to make sense. Actually, the more I work with kids who've had this happen to them, especially in our community, the more I have tremendous respect for those who are able to tell. Because it's tough to tell. And when you do tell, if they trust one of you to tell you, it's a tremendous... Um, 
achrayas that they're putting on your shoulders, because it's not easy to tell. It's not easy. brings all kinds of concerns and fears and worries about retribution and being blamed and guilt, etc. Let's talk about uh, what I want to do, and hopefully we'll get a little bit of discussion going with, with the time allotted to me. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, first of all, the two main points I want to talk about. One is um, impact, the other is what are the signs that you look for, and then maybe a little bit about intervention. So let's talk about, first of all, the impact. And that's, that's in a way, important to talk about, because even in framing a shila, as the Rav was saying, there's, this often is dinei fashos. So in framing the shila, it's just important to know that um, there's... Um, a um, the following sets of um, the following sets of impact that we know can happen from this. Number one, very very high likelihood of becoming depressed and of becoming suicidal. Most kids who have this happen to them don't chas um attempt suicide, but a high level. I've done some research and some papers that I've written showing an incredibly increased re re risk of suicidality. Many of those who've been active in this field in the from community know of, you know, at least four or five people who we know that they're suicide. Usually it's not identified as a suicide, was because of abuse. Um, the, um, and when I put it together, the numbers are a little astounding, but it's rare. The far more common event is just depression a loss of, of, of interest in life, a feeling of being damaged, self-blame, guilt, and perhaps the most common that we find in our research and that I just see is a loss of emuna, a loss of emuna. If you look at, um, according to some of my colleagues, when they look at some of the at-risk children in our community who become alienated and you just interview them, the percentage that have a history of molestation, of having been molested, is uncommonly high. Some of my, I don't know any of my colleagues who do work in this area who don't say that it's at least 50% of these kids. I don't know that we have solid research on it, but everybody, everybody agrees that it's a very high percentage. It makes sense. What does this do to your neshama? What does it do to your emuna, especially if people aren't protecting you? So that's, that's a very important impact. So, the symptom pattern, and you can't diagnose it from this because there are many reasons why kids will show these problems that have nothing to do with, with abuse, but it's, it's higher levels of depression, self-concept problems where you feel damaged and that nobody could possibly love you, problems later on as an adult in the area of intimacy, problems with relations with others, problems with trusting others, uh, very often this comes up later on once they're married, both in terms of intimacy and in terms of trust and ability to really connect emotionally, because you've been hurt, so you have trouble trusting. Um, somatic complaints, meaning the body keeps the score, high levels of stomach aches, headaches, getting sick. And then finally is the immune issues. The immune issues, we find them incredibly, incredibly high. It may not show itself with the person no longer being Shomotar or Mitzvah. It usually doesn't. It's more like relating to the Bain Adam Lemakam in a broken, fundamentally disconnected way because of such feelings of alienation. And what they usually tell me is they feel I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to Davin. 
I'm so horrible, I'm so awful, I'm so broken, I'm so damaged. You hear this, you could understand why it's Hashavah Saveda to get them help. And you get them help, by the way, here's the most important news, is you get them help, the norm is resilience. The norm is resilience. That's what keeps me going in this field, is the fact that all you have to do is give a kid help, give them safety, give them a feeling that people are around them. This week I had a situation where we um, worked with helping a child who um, had this kind of history. And um, I get a call that him and other family members are now putting tefillin on for the first time since this all started. It's an amazing thing. It made me cry, you know, that the yarmulke is back on his head, the tefillin are back on his arm and on his, uh, connected to his heart and to his thinking. Um, okay, let's, um, let's move to um, the signs in yeshiva setting then a concluding story, and then maybe some questions to make it more tachlis-oriented. Signs in yeshiva setting. Here are some of the specific signs. None of these are going to be surprising. A lot of it is common sense. The specific signs are knowledge about these areas, knowledge about um, intimacy-related areas, unusual in yeshiva setting. Very similar to the story I told about Tashal of Skamara. Our kids are sheltered. When they seem to show knowledge and behavior that doesn't fit with what we know their sheltered um, background is about, it's a red flag. It doesn't mean something has to happen. It could be that they um, watched an inappropriate uh, site on, on, on the Internet. Or they, got, you know, they snuck into a friend's house or into a workplace or into a library and saw the Internet. But it also could possibly be tied to something happening to them that should be a red flag. Number two a fear of a specific place or person that suddenly comes and didn't happen before. Very often, suddenly a kid won't want to go to the mikvah, which is a place where this happens very often. Um, it's most likely to happen in unstructured, unsupervised places. It could be on a school bus. It could be in an unsupervised part of the playgrounds. It could be in a shul in, during Mincha uh, Marv, during Shal Shuddas during unsuper, you know, where they go into a part of a shul or a base medrash that's um, unsupervised. They'll, go, they'll find a storage room. They'll find um, a place where nobody's watching. And that's, those are the most likely places. But if a child suddenly develops a fear of a specific place or person, take it very seriously. Open your eyes. Stand by them. Hukheim Tukheim. Um, another thing is if a child forces... Um, inappropriate acts on other children. That's, that, that's, that's a dark red flag. Children just don't do that. So you may have children at a certain age playing doctor and showing curiosity when they're four or five years old, but there are three ways you evaluate, for those of you who are mechanchem and younger kids, there are three ways you evaluate whether or not play is a normal realm or something that has to be looked into. One is you look at their mood when they're involved in that play. Is it playful or is it angry? Two, you look at the action. Is the action an angry um, action? And also, though, is it an action of something they shouldn't even know about? How do they know about it? And we have criteria, we have norms that we look at it, and there are no norms for our world, but it's the Kalvachomer syndrome. You know, it's basically it's the Kalvachomer. So they're showing something that the average five-year-old or seven-year-old or ten-year-old doesn't know about or doesn't do, and we see it. It's a kavachomer that it's a dark red flag for us. Um, the um, 
um, other areas are a child who suddenly starts to be afraid of being touched, suddenly doesn't want to submit to a physical exam. All those things are the kind of things that... Um, that, that. Now, sometimes it's, it's more general. It might be self-injurious behavior. It might be sleep disturbances. It might be eating disturbances. But the bottom line is that what it's about is usually common sense that it's showing that somehow they've been exposed to something that's more than they can, um, than they can handle. Let me tell you um, about a study I did a number of years ago that's very relevant in terms of this, and then we'll go on to maybe a story and then a, a discussion. Here, here's the study, because it's, it's very important for Mechanchem to hear this. A um, number of years ago, there was a man who was arrested, a bus driver. Uh, he ran the preschool bus run on Long Island, not, not, not with Jewish kids, with non-Jewish kids. And they found out he was pulling the bus behind the local Sears in Hicksville and molesting kids. The police discovered this. He pled guilty to 80 counts of sexual abuse. They then, um, at the time, I was director of psychology at a hospital, and we had a specialized clinic working with these kids, focusing on, on these kind of problems. So I'm doing some groups with these kids, and some of my psychologists are also running groups, and something starts to come out that was unbelievable to me. It was the first of all, not a single kid disclosed. Okay, I just told you. Why don't kids disclose secrecy, threats? And he was threatening them. If you tell, I'm going to come to your house in the middle of the night and set it on fire. If you tell, you know, I'm going to, he had, I'm going to shoot your sister when she goes to, sh to school. All those kind of threats, which we weren't surprised at. But here's the thing that surprised us. What really surprised us is we found out that the school showed the kid a very good video on abuse prevention. Excellent video, telling them on this video that was very well done and very entertaining, put out by Disney Productions, telling them that if somebody who works for your school touches you in a way that's inappropriate, keep telling till somebody listens. So literally described what was happening to them on a daily basis, okay? And not a single kid disclosed. So the study was we interviewed all the kids. And we, we by the way, one more thing. We were able to show from court records and attendance records and other school records, that not only did the kids see the video, but they had a very nice lecture from the school nurse telling them what to do in the case of um, molestation. Not a single kid disclosed, so what was the study? Sat down with each of the kids and just asked them very nicely, what were you thinking? Why didn't you tell? The video told you what to do. The nurse told you what to do. Why didn't you tell? You know what the number one reason was? The number one reason was, they'd say, but my parents would kill me for doing this. My parents would kill me for the things that Mr. Bob did to me. They'd kill me. And it turned out that the parents had never spoken to the kids about how to stay safe. Um, nor did the teachers directly accept in the video. So what's the... What's the take-home message from this? What's the nimshal here? What do you see? What, what's the take-home message in terms of your, um, your, your understanding? Is this, that, this is not so simple. Probably the answer belongs in the home in terms of teaching kids safety skills without frightening them. You don't have to say the word molestation. You don't have to make them think that there's an abuser hiding behind every corner. But the same way the parents learn how to talk to children about 
about um, water safety or about crossing the street safely or about fire safety. Teach them about about um, that it's not rechilus to say if somebody is touching you in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. To teach parents how to do that, every time I give a lecture to a group like this of parents, okay, and I've done it probably um, hundreds of times, there are at least um, seven, eight people who come and tell me about some experiences they, th that they had in their personal lives. This is when I talk to parents. Okay? Or they tell me about situations and they tell me about how they only wished that somebody had talked to them when they were younger so they would have known what to do. It's just a very important thing to understand. I know there may be some resistance to this and I certainly have no right to tell any of you what to do and I know that there are hashkafic and halachic issues that may be in play here. But from what I understand, okay, talk, if you can't deal with this in the schools directly, at the very least, from what I understand, to have parents learn how to talk or to talk to your own children about this in a, in, a, in, a, in a safe way, just sort of in the context of just not scaring them, but in the context of just role-playing, saying, what if something happened to you? What if somebody tickled you in a way that you felt uncomfortable? What if somebody asked you to do something in a way that made you feel uncomfortable? Doing what-ifs, bringing it up, that could be incredibly helpful. And it doesn't have to frighten children, and I've known of many situations. I'm going to tell you one more story. Well, let, let me end with two stories. Story number one. Um, I've been working in a community um, familiar to all of you. Um, uh, community, um, I, I'm not sure I have permission to say what the community is, but with the undisputed Gadol heading up trying to do something about this problem because they have a real issue of wanting to, uh, wanting to deal with this. And um, they're trying to figure out acceptable ways to protect kids so the Rosh Yeshiva had an idea. Let me, um, he said, let's have me come in. And he had me meet with all the pediatricians in town. In this particular community, there was something like, I think if I remember correctly, about eight, nine pediatricians who saw all of the 10,000 or so families in town. Okay, all from pediatricians. It was a self-contained large town. And um, so I did. I sat with the pediatricians, and we agreed at the behests of the Rosh Yeshiva in that town who were really, you know, um, very concerned about the problem that, look, you know, this is totally acceptable. Let's have the pediatricians, when they do the well baby visit, when they do the checkups, have them just tell the kids, as they're doing the check checkup, you know, I'm, I'm examining you now like this because that's what doctors do and your mother's in the room with me. But if anybody ever touches you like this without permission, um, or without knowledge of your parents, um, tell there's no such thing as keeping it a secret. It's just a simple thing, two minutes. So Simchas Torah, after the pediatricians did this last summer, Simchas Torah, one of the shuls in that town, there was a kid, an older kid, who started to molest a younger kid who was about eight, nine years old. And the kid screamed like crazy and screamed nonstop, and after about a half hour, somebody heard him, it was in the storage closet in the basement of the shul, somebody heard him, came to rescue him, and he was saved. The guy didn't get anywhere with him. So his mother asked him, how did you know what to do? How did you know what to do when this was happening? The kid said, what do you mean? He said, Dr. Jacobs told me exactly what to do. He told me, remember last summer, you took me to Dr. Jacobs? He told me, if anybody touches me in a way that's not appropriate, just keep screaming until somebody comes. It works, it works. I can't tell you what to do because I have no right to go into specifics with you, 
you know, uh, because I know it's complicated. I understand it's complicated. I could just tell you that some of the models used in various communities have worked, be a parent, teaching parents how to deal with this and how to talk to their children, be it having mechanchem deal with it directly, be it the pediatrician model, which was a very nice model and seems to be helpful, or be it talking to the children directly. Again, there are all kinds of models, many gedolim, um, have Paskins that many of these models are okay. I understand there has to be a local um, guidance and I have no right to talk to you about it. I'm just talking to you as a psychologist. And, um, but let me pull it together and, and end with this story. And then we'll, we'll have a couple of minutes. We, it looks like we have about 15 minutes left for discussion within my 40 minutes. Um, and it goes like this. Um, the research shows that the norm is resilience. The norm is that as long as somebody finds out what's happening and gets the kids help, the vast majority are fine. You get them help. You give them support. You have them light up Broca's area by talking out what it is that happened to them, and you make them safe. Their Amuna comes back. The depression lifts, and they could go on to have very happy, wonderful marriage. That's the norm. The vast majority, the vast majority, with help, get better. If you don't, then, you know, not everybody is horribly affected. We know that, um, oh, hi, I'm down to 10 minutes. Okay, so I'll, I'll end with the story. I'll end with the story, and we'll forget the discussion. So I'll end with the story, and maybe later on. Um, okay, because that's, that's thir 30, because then it'll be 30 minutes. I started at 5-2, so that's fine. Let me, let me end with the story. I'll end with the story. I'll end with the story, and we'll end. But, but the point I was making is an important point. So you, you got that point? Okay. Here's the story. It's a nice story. It's a hopeful story. story about um, an uncle. One of my uncles was a GI. And, and this is the resilience thing. It's an important thing. Because, you know, the research shows if you get too anxious about this, if you get too anxious about this, you get frozen. What we want to do is get you just sort of aware Open your eyes. The eye sees only what it knows. Open your eyes, okay, to overdo the halam. And then to realize that resilience is the norm. You get the kid's help. Look at these signs. Look at these symptoms. Have guidelines here if you want. I'm happy we're, we have this now here um, downloaded on the desktop of the, of the computer downstairs. Could easily distribute it to you. But here's, here's the story. It's a nice, a nice story. Um, I have an uncle who was a soldier in World War II in, in uh, the American Army. And he was with a group of soldiers that was being asked to liberate a concentration camp. So the commanding officer gets up and says, guys, you're about to liberate a concentration camp. Um, don't give the kids who survived this camp any chocolate. You know, you've been giving chocolate all over Europe to these kids. They said, don't give chocolate because their digestive systems are so undeveloped that one piece of chocolate could, could prove fatal. So he goes in, goes straight to the children's barracks, and sees this horrible scene we've all seen pictures of of these walking skeletons. So he didn't know what to do. just didn't know what to do. He knew he couldn't feed the kids. So he thought spontaneously, he goes over to one of the kids and gives them a hug. And from one end of the children's barracks to the other, a line formed of kids waiting for a hug. And here's the end of the story. We know what happened to those kids, because those particular kids were followed into adulthood by a researcher who didn't believe they'd survive emotionally. 
You know what the research showed? That as long as that hug continued metaphorically into adulthood, as long as they had just one person who cared, one person who was there for them, one person to hug them, they turned out they turned out fine. Sure, they were monsters. Sure, they were nightmares. Sure, they were problems. But essentially, they went on to have normal, productive, wonderful lives. And that's the bottom line. The bottom line is with the Hakeim Tokemima, with giving our kids a hug, with keeping our eyes to their suffering, may we all be Zoha to be Makayim the Mitzvah of Hashavah Thank you.